Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Let us turn in our Bibles to Romans, the 11th chapter, verses 28 to 32. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Can you all say that? Irrevocable. All right. For just as you once were disobedient to God, can you all say the word disobedient? That's a joke. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so also... So these also now have been disobedient because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we go through this, by the way, the reason I had you pronounce irrevocable is because it is a word we don't use very much. Uh, The reason I ask you to pronounce the word disobedient is because we we all have an easy time pronouncing that word. And um, I want you to observe this whole passage from above and feel the fact that going through all of this passage is a certain seesaw effect. This, that, this, that, this, that, and then that and this. And so you're, you're jumping back and forth between they and their, which is who? The Jews, to the Gentiles. And so it's a back and forth thing. But what's really interesting is the fact that the back and forth thing is God's decree, his will, his choice, his intention. Now that doesn't seem like any big deal until I say, and the back and forth means that one group, there are only two groups here, and those two groups are the people of God, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews, and everybody else, which variously in the book of Romans is called the world or Gentiles. And what he's doing is back and forth on the seesaw. At one time, one's up in the air, and the other time, the other is up in the air in God's plan for salvation. And so far, you're all with me. You know, you don't have a problem with that. But when I tell you that the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to put it in such a way that it requires one to be turned against for the other to be saved. And then it requires, um, how would I say this? It requires the one that isn't saved 
to envy the one who has been saved for them to then come back up. In other words, it's back and forth between the Gentiles and the Jews. It's connected in the will of God, and it is God's will that some shut down as others are lifted up, and he intentionally uses envy and jealousy in that process of one being shut down and the other being lifted up. You see that through the text. If you read Calvin on this, Calvin says things like this. He says, um, he says, Paul teaches us that they had been thus blinded for a time by the providence of God. And none of us have any problem with that, right? None of us have any problem with Calvin writing, they had been blinded for a time by the providence of God. Maud, make a decision. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. They have been blinded by God for a time. What we have problems with are the next words that he writes, which is, Paul teaches us that they had been thus blinded for a time by the providence of God in order that a way might be made for the gospel to come to the Gentiles. Now that is problematic. I mean, do you understand why does God need to do things so that he may do other things? And specifically, why does he have to shut down one to lift up another? Then Calvin goes on and he says, they were alienated from God on account of the gospel in order that this way, in this way, the salvation which before has been entrusted to them might come to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles and the Jews at various times are alienated from God. God is the agent in order that he may show mercy to the other group. Purpose, cause, right? And then he says, similarly, Because God desired to have pity on the Gentiles, the Jews were for this reason deprived of the light of faith. Now, come on, that is just weird. Because God desired to have pity on the Gentiles, the Jews were for this reason deprived of the light of faith. You know? And so that's, I want you to see that's, I'm getting really trendy, that's a meta-narrative of this whole section, you know? It's like God does this in order that God may do that. How do you think about that as a Christian? Who is God answerable to? You know, who's telling him whether he may or may not do something, right? I mean, it just seems wacko. Now I'm gonna play a little joke on you or a trick on you and I'm gonna say, actually, you know the old game, Mother May I? I was, I forget which family it was, but I was meeting two children in a family that is new to the church. It may have been uh, the Magnuses, I don't remember, but uh, 
one of the brothers is Simon and the other, is that your family? Who is it, Simon? And the other brother is somebody else and I was trying to gauge which one was Simon so I knew which one would have to, Simon says, you know. Simon says, lift up your leg. Simon says, turn around three times, you know. Who is telling God what he may and may not do? And yet we have the language of permission with, with respect to God. And I want to start with this by, by saying the truth is all of us, all of us think that God does have to answer to us and that he needs our permission. All of us are like this. Okay. Now, you're not ready to buy it yet, right? Okay. So, like, for instance, how many of us think that it's really beneath God to think in terms of a fixed pie? And we've all learned that fixed pies aren't really fixed, especially with God, right? Because you, because you worship God with your money does not mean that you will have less money, because you give to God doesn't mean you'll have, how many of us have experienced us finally like having our claws pried out of our money and, and worshiping God with our money and all of a sudden we have more money. How many of us have had this happen? So we know with God, money isn't a fixed pie. You know, might be with the treasury department. No, that's the last place it's a fixed pie. You know? <laughs> and then another thing. What is this about, you have to have win-lose? I mean, honestly, haven't we gotten to the point where we recognize that that's like a false meta-narrative, win-lose? That's like what boys do. You know, boys are always looking to compete so that they're going to be a loser. You know, and does God really need to participate in such an adolescent male fantasy? You know, can't God rise above the need to have winners and losers? I mean, come on, people. I mean, you know, one of my favorite cartoons that's G-rated at least was this one where there's this like small, short, insecure, probably balding dude standing looking up at his boss who's standing over him, hawking over him, right? And as he's looking up at his boss and he says, I know you say that it's a win-win, but what if it's a lose-lose and everything goes bad-bad? And of course, that's the conceit of all of us today is that everything can be turned into a win-win. And wouldn't you hope that God would be liberal and generous enough that salvation would be a win-win? Doesn't it seem beneath God to inspire the Apostle Paul to write in such a way that it requires the cutting off of the Jews to save the Gentiles. Doesn't it seem beneath the dignity of God to have that done in order that the Jews will be envious and jealous of the Gentiles? I mean, aren't we trying to get past this, this log jam that has dogged the human race 
for so long known as racism. Why would God, you know, why would God foment (laughs) racism? But, you know, there's, there's wonderful news in this passage because it ends this way, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And so, okay, well, okay, so like this is an intermediate plan, but in the end, everyone will be saved. It says he'll show mercy to all. I believe in reading the Bible literally. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you uncomfortable with me right now? Why? Why are you uncomfortable? Yeah, but are you on board with where I have been? So why are you on board with it even though you're uncomfortable? Maybe because you're the token Jew in a sea of Gentiles. He is, actually. Although we have two. One, two. Now, go on, open it up, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so Daniel is saying he doesn't know which side I represent and he doesn't feel comfortable with the side that I'm claiming to represent. He wonders, is that really my position? But he knows it isn't because he knows I honor God, I honor his word, and I believe every word of scripture, right? Well, yeah, look at the end. He shut up all in disobedience. We're all on board with that, right? All, 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 all. Okay, so that he may show mercy. What what are you gonna do? You're gonna parse the first all, it's including all, because everybody is disobedient. And then what, you're gonna back out on the second all and say, well, it doesn't mean the same thing there. So I've told you, when I cut grass, I always listen to Romans, right? And every single time I come to that verse right there, what do you think I think? This is one time I will admit what I'm doing. I'm asking you to tell me what I think. (laughs) What I always think is, oh, that would be so wonderful if God would just save everybody in the end. I mean, honestly, that's what I think every time I hear it. My heart goes pitter-patter, <laughs> you know? And finally, I have an idol who is worthy of my attention and love. Because we know it's an idol. We know that that's not what Scripture teaches, right? We all know this. We all know that hell is not a myth made up by tight religious people for the satisfaction of their hatred of their neighbor. Right? We know Jesus taught more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. All right? Now, listen. 
The reason I am taking you through this is that when you read the Bible, I want you to recognize that you don't like what it says. It does not improve a man doing reps in a gym, a guy pumping iron. It doesn't do any good for them to not get in touch with their body's resistance. It's called resistance training, for heaven's sakes. And it's not until we're in pain in exercise that we grow. It's not until we're in pain under the word of God that we grow. It's not that I'm a sadist. I am not trying to put you in pain. I'm trying to heal you. But to be healed You can't withdraw yourself. You know, you have an an appendicitis and the doctor will come over and take two fingers and do what? The doctor will take two fingers, push them deep into your abdomen, right here, right? And that's not real bad. You already have a lot of pain. But then, oh, they'll pull those fingers out of your abdomen and ah, and it's painful. And the doctor's able to diagnose you. And you're able to be healed. And this is how God works in us. God, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is not subservient to your way of thinking. And you say, oh, but I'm enlightened. I'm an American. I have a U.S. passport. And I have a college degree. And I have sensibilities that are quite evolved, and I believe in progress. And I make the right choices. As a matter of fact, I spent my life teaching kids to make the right choices. Uh, Your eminence. And I suppose you go to the supermarket with a cloth bag, too. Listen. God is God, and God is not keeping track of our petty morality. And God is not sitting in his heaven 2,000 years ago knowing how evolved we would think we are on the issue of racism and trying to write the book of Romans and trying to adjudicate the conflict in the New Testament church in such a way that he will not be judged by the petty morality of Americans who have, who are in complete bondage to stupidity in the absence of any self-knowledge and think that they've gotten past racism, (laughs) you know? I mean, honestly, if God knew what we were like, which he might have, I mean, you know I'm being facetious. If God knew what we were like, would he write the book of Romans the way he has? You know, something that's interesting about the book of Romans is that it's the only place in scripture where the racism is faced from the opposite side. All the rest of the New Testament, the racism of the Jews against the Gentiles, the prime example being what book? Galatians. And so all the rest of the New Testament, the racism is the Jewish racism against Gentiles. But God is always an equal opportunity employer. 
Have you ever tried to suggest to a black man that he's racist? Or to a white man who thinks he's gotten past racism that blacks can be racist. You don't get anywhere. But God is not a respecter of persons. God knows our hearts. And God deals with the Gentile racism against the Jews and the Jewish Gentiles against the racism. And as the Apostle Paul explained it to them and to us in such a way that we cop to it. We cop to the fact that we have only been saved. I mean, I don't want to say it that way, but let me, let me put it like this. We have been saved for the purpose of eliciting the envy of the Jews. Now, how does that make you feel? It's just an object of envy. And sadly, it's not your hair. It's the very fact that you exist humbly under the cross. And that's supposed to elicit the envy of Jews. So when you read the Bible, please be honest. Be honest. This section does not feel right. It just doesn't feel right. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. Enemies of whom? Enemies of God. From the standpoint of the gospel, what standpoint? Well, standpoint is a place that you stand. But the important thing is from that place you stand, you view, right? And so it's the view. From the view of the gospel, from the perspective, we would say. From the perspective of the gospel, the gospel's good news, from the perspective of salvation, they, meaning the Jews, are enemies for your sake. So in other words, it's good for you that they're enemies of salvation, of the gospel of God. It's for your sake that they're enemies of God. It benefits you that they're enemies of God. But from the standpoint of God's choice, so we have different perspectives we're looking from. From the viewpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice. So now we've jumped into another place, and this is the place of God's decrees and choices. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They're enemies and they're beloved. Do you see this? They is the Jews. So at one and the same time, the Jews are enemies and the Jews are beloved. Now, how can that be? What you have to think in terms of is the difference between individual election and corporate election. You have to think in, in terms of God choosing a group a people group, the Jews, and God choosing individual in, in that group. You remember earlier in the book of Romans where the, God says all Israel is not Israel. You remember that? And so that's sort of the finest point it's narrowed to. 
All Israel is not Israel. And so from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies. But from the standpoint of what? From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, listen, God's choice is the Jews. We all know this. That choice continues. It has not been done away with because as we said last week, it's very, very, very clear that the Apostle Paul has been and continues to speak here ethnically, racially. Okay? And so from the standpoint of God's choice, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And who are the fathers? Well, the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Jews is a people group, ethnic group, racial group. There are only two groups in the world, the Jews and everybody else. That's Gentiles. Okay? The Jews are beloved. Why? For the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what God, through the, whole, through the Apostle Paul, is saying here is that the Jews as a group, remember, we're dealing with Gentile racism against the Jews. He's saying, no, 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 the Jews as a group are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Their fathers? No. You're defined as a Gentile by the fact that you are not a seed of Abraham. You are not beloved for the sake of the fathers. And yet, the Bible says that Abraham is our father, okay. So again, we're back and forth. We must be dealing with the distinction between God's individual election and choice and God's corporate election and choice. And so corporately, the Jews are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And so we read... In Romans 9, the Apostle Paul talking about the unbelievable love that God has poured on the Jews. And in Romans 9, beginning with verse 3, he says he's in terrible agony and grief over the loss of salvation of his people, their, their unbelief, their, their antagonism towards, towards God's Son. And he says, for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen. So there's no question, there's an ethnic thing here. He's talking about his brothers, the Jews. Just like blacks talk about brother, right? Same same issue going on here. Who are Israelites, so again, it's ethnic, to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever, amen. And so that is in the brains of the, of the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome when he writes, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And that is a summary of all the love that God has poured on them, Okay. And then he issues this simple statement, which is so precious to those who belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. All right? What does irrevocable mean? It means that you can't revoke it. Unable to be revoked. 
Um, what, what my brain immediately went to is cancel culture, where one day you're living and the, other, and the next day you've been canceled. When God gives his gifts, when God calls us, Tim, Tim, the hound of heaven, the gifts he gives me, the call he issues to me, they are irrevocable. Now, have you ever known somebody, I was talking on the phone with the pastor of the church Mary Lee and I used to be at. We're going to go up for the 30th anniversary celebration of the church. And we've been invited, which is sweet. And in the middle of our conversation, um, um, we started talking about a certain individual who, when I was at that church, uh, had, had a Christian faith that was consistently encouraging to me on a deep level. And this individual has not been back to the church in, I would guess, 29 years. And this individual's life has gone down in in bad ways, all right? And so we were talking about this, this individual and the pastor, who I'm not sure how the pastor has met this individual, honestly, but he said he had met this person. And the pastor was kind of mystified. I'd, I'd, I'd asked him to do something with respect to this person. And uh, he, he kind of let out this sort of, it's hard to imagine that you would say that about his spiritual life. <laughs> you know? Because he's never seen it. Now, have you ever known anybody like that? You've known someone who evidenced such incredible fruit. And it was obvious to you at the time that this was fruit of the Spirit. They, they bore fruit for God. And Jesus says, by the fruit you shall know them. And then all of a sudden the tree dries up. We had one of our, uh, actually uh, one of our calm, uh, whatchamajiggy, sweet gums. Uh, we went away for a week, we came back, the whole thing was dead. Gone, you know. Have you ever known Christians like that? that one day they're bearing fruit, they're green, their roots are deep, and the next day they're dead. And yet, what does God say here? God says that his gifts and calling are what? Irrevocable. I think one of the applications of that is for us to not be smarty pants about the work of God in individuals. We have to be very, very careful about thinking that we're able to judge who is and isn't a Christian. Now, if you're ahead of me here, you'll say to me, well then why do churches excommunicate people? 
You know, you're barring them from the Lord's table and you've seen fruit in them. Why would you bar them from the Lord's table? Because God has ordained discipline to awaken the sleeping. And furthermore, when you excommunicate somebody, you're not saying that they are not saved. Did you know that? What you're actually saying is there is no external evidence that would cause us to believe that you're saved. Do you see the difference between that? One is saying you're damned, and we, the elders board, make that judgment. The other is we, the elders board, judge there to be no evidence upon which we may say that you are saved. And do you remember that in 1 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul is saying, I've already cast him out, now you cast him out. Do you remember there, he then says that they're to cast him out. What? What's the purpose? You remember this? It says for the salvation of his soul. Be very careful. When you hear God calling you to repentance, do not harden your hearts as the Israelites did. And so they died in the wilderness. I'm not removing the command of God that we repent and turn. But I do not want you as an individual seeing your your rebellion against God, which is deep, as hopeless. Why? Well, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is not into canceling his own will. You say, well, how do I know whether or not he has given me gifts and he's called me? (laughs) And I say, "Uh, how about this? By their fruit, you shall know them. And you say, well, that doesn't feel good enough to me. And I say, okay, then why don't you just cancel yourself and then that will just relieve the tension. And, you know, there's a lot of us that that's the way we think. I would rather damn myself than have hope, which keeps getting deferred, you know? I would rather live in certainty of hell than have to hope for heaven and be hung out to dry in the last note, you know? Remember Don, John Don, you know? Wilt thou forgive that sin that I wallowed in, that I r- repented of for a short, but wallowed in that sin a score of years? Well, now it's done, done, done. Thou hast not done, for I have more. Will you forgive the sin that I, that I use my sin to entice others into the same sin? Will you forgive that sin? I mean, it's so pathetic. The dude is so scared, you know? He's like, what about this? What if I do this? Will you forgive that sin? Well, what about this sin? Will you forgive? And then you remember the end. He says, I have a fear that when I come to death's door, that, and I, don't, I can't quote it to you, but there will be no hope for me. You will not meet me at death's door. And then he says something like, swear to me, you will. And then he says, when thou hast done, thou hast done, I have no more. That, that is God meeting us at death's door. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Don't you damn yourself. 
You may not. <laughs> you cannot. Do you think you can self-cancel what God has ordained? You may spend your life in tears because of your refusal to have hope. Knock your socks off. You could have had a happy life. <laughs> you know, knock your socks off. <laughs> I guess now I am a sadist. I mean, you see so many people knocking their socks off, refusing to have hope. And a lot of times what you see is God inexorably, indubitably, the hound of heaven. You know, you see young kids who, when they reach teenage years, again and again and again and again, they do something bad and they're caught. <laughs> you know, and you begin to think, uh, and I've heard parents say this, I've heard youth pastors say this, you know, dude, God really loves you. Oh, yeah? Why do you say that? Well, because you just keep getting caught. It's amazing how some children are just always getting caught. And if you watch carefully, what you see a lot of times with those children is that they get caught because they have a real living conscience. And they can't bear their sin. I think an awful lot of times when people get caught, it's because they intend to get caught. Okay? I know a man, he used to be in this church, who um, he had a habit, a bad habit, a drug habit. And one night, the SWAT team came in on him, and yanked him into prison, okay? He had knocked off five banks, all right? His father told me that the fifth one, the reason he got caught is he used his own deposit slip to write the note demanding money. You know what I think? I think he wanted to get caught. He's not stupid. The gift and the callings of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. And Jesus says that those who come to him, he'll never cast out. And you may think that some people earn their way into heaven by carrying their groceries out of the supermarket in a cloth bag. But that that's not for you. You just make sure that you go to a Bible-believing church and, and you do what they tell you to do and nobody can find fault with you. Or you may be somebody who has a deep moral commitment to saying to everyone, I will not hope. I am depressed. I am the sore thumb of the universe. God has passed me by. It is not my fault. <laughs> and of course, in the Western world today, those people are the most powerful people of all because they're the victims. 
you know? Poor, poor, pitiful me. Poor, poor, pitiful me. No, it is not righteous. It is not pious. It is not godly. It is not faithful. For you to refuse to hope in the permanence of God's gifting and calling. There's nothing pious about that. And if the real issue is not you, but your son, your brother, (laughs) maybe even your husband or wife, and so it's not yourself you're thinking about, but you're actually thinking about people who have just ground you into dust. They have treated you in despicable ways. They have traded on the name of Jesus Christ and embezzled from you. They have abused children. They have done this, that, and the other thing. And so you just tell them in your, quietly, you don't do this publicly, you just say to hell with them. I will not treat them as Christians. I will not have hope for them. That's not right either. Because God often deals with us in a way that cuts us off from his church, cuts us off from assurance of salvation. Westminster Standards talk about this. Because he wants us to what? He wants us to glorify him. An awful lot of, uh, I would say, conservative Reformed Christians spend their lives pulling petals off of the daisy with everybody in the church. He loves him, he loves him not. He loves him, he loves him not. Not about God loving the individual, but about the individual loving God. In other words, we're always trying to establish who's a real Christian and who isn't. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Don't you think that you know? You may have to treat excommunicated people as unbelievers as part of their discipline. But don't you think that you have a leg up on anybody? You don't. You don't. Now, how do I know that? Well, because it says, for, verse 32, God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. You would have to say that mercy is the predominant word in this whole section that we've read this morning. And how is it that we see mercy? Well, the way we see mercy is only against the background of disobedience. Mercy can never be claimed. Or I should say, it can be claimed because of God's promises, but it can never be earned. Never. You can't earn mercy. And what qualifies you for mercy is what? The only thing that qualifies you for mercy is disobedience. 
So the question is, and you know the answer to it because we just read the verse, but the question is, are you shut up in disobedience? But to ask it more directly, are you disobedient? This is a recurring theme in Jesus' life. And we read in the Gospel of Mark in the second chapter, verse 15 and on. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them. And they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus says to you, moral you, high standards you, evolved you, progressive you, self-righteous you, completely lacking in self-awareness you, God is saying to you, okay, fine. You're healthy? You can see? You're righteous? I'm not for you. Now listen, those of you who are self-righteous are sitting there thinking, I'm so glad I'm not a sinner like all the other scumbags here who are probably sitting there sick with guilt. And they should be. (laughs) You know, they should be. (laughs) You know, Oh God, I thank you that I am not righteous. Don't believe your own press. Ask your wife, ask your children whether you're self-righteous. And if you're German, you probably are. (laughs) That was for the sake of the walkers. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I do love you all. I do love you. Why is it that God will not save the righteous? You know, it's kind of interesting if you think about COVID because Christians have lost their minds the last year and a half. And we all think that the real issue of eternity is COVID. You know? You know, it's like we're wacko. Psycho wacko. The real issue is not COVID. But the interesting thing about COVID is you you can't get vaccinated against COVID if you're sick. You can only get vaccinated against COVID if you're well. And that's the opposite of the mercy of God. If you're well, uh-uh. you're not going to get it. 
I started this way and I'm going to end this way by saying that we never stop judging God. Don't you lie to yourself and think that you accept God saying it's a win-lose. It's a fixed pie. And that that seesaw swung from the Jews to the Gentiles. And that all Israel is not Israel. I mean, I could go through quote after quote after quote of what we have been studying for years now. And I could show you again and again and again, you disapprove of God. You are opposed to God's word. And you say, no, I'm not. I say, oh, okay, you're healthy. You're not shut up in disobedience. You just are pious. And all your inclinations are directly in harmony with the king eternal. Isn't it wonderful? You know, you're an evangelical. Their stuff doesn't stink. Come on. Come on. Can you lower yourself to be shut up in disobedience? And to have that be your profession of faith? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Can that be what unites us? Remember I said that we really don't approve of God and we don't approve of what he says. God knows that if he allowed us, we would turn Christianity into self-love and self-promotion. They were in the upper room right before Jesus died. His disciples had spent three years with him. And at that moment, it says, and there arose a striving amongst them as to which of them was the greatest. God does not care about your glory because God's name is jealousy. And he is capital F fixated on his own glory. And it gives him no glory to allow into heaven people who have evolved to the point where they are not sick, they are not blind, and they are not sinners disobedient. But the man that comes into heaven saying, I am blind, who says, I am sicker than a dog, like Charlie is now, and who comes in and says, I'm a worthless servant. I am disobedient. What God says is, I have it covered. And of course, that causes us to look at God and go, what? You know, what? I have it covered. Me? You know, me? You got me covered? Impossible. Why do you say it's impossible? You have no idea who I am. 
And what God says is, you have no idea how precious my son is to me. And you go, what does that have to do with anything? And he says, he bore your sins on the cross. He bore your sin. More? Are you serious? My? Did you know about this one? And God says, yeah, I was there. I saw that. I have that covered with the blood of my son. Did you read my book where I wrote down for you that I have shut up all in disobedience so that I may show mercy to all. And what we all do at that point is we all say, yeah, I've read that. Um, (laughs) And I've tried to believe it, but it just seems inconceivable to me. I have done the same sin and repented for it over and over and over again. My wife divorced me. My children hate me. I spent 10 years in prison. I'm jaded. I love killing animals. God says to us, so you are shut up in in disobedience then, right? And you kind of go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep, 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 yes. And he says, I show mercy to you. I show mercy to you. Is that really so difficult? Can you give up trying to justify yourself? And, you know, we would say to him, well, I'm not trying to justify myself. I'm just trying to explain to you what a difficult work you have with me. And that's where Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the depressed man is the proudest man. Are you all with me? Because the depressed man says that he is beyond the limits of the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you all understand this? And so... If you were in my shoes, looking at everybody right now, what would you say? You would say, come to Jesus. Give it up. Honestly. (laughs) Give it up for God. Give it up for God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israelites did. And so they died in the wilderness. Give it up. Admit that you have been turned over to disobedience. Give glory to God. Okay? Can you tell I'm done preaching? But I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you to think that you're a hopeless case. 
I don't want you to think that. Father, we are weak and timid. We are sheep. We're skittish. We're deer caught in headlights. And we cannot believe that you mean what you say. Father, please, please open our eyes so that we may see the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the hopelessness of our own hearts so that we may flee to you, we pray in Jesus' name.